Beloved, I invite you now to read with me two passages from Holy Scripture that will be accompanying our text for this morning's sermon. Let us read first from the book of Job, from Job chapter 39. We'll start at verse 1 and go on to verse 40, or chapter 40, verse 2. Then we'll read as well from Proverbs chapter 6, beginning at verse 6 and going on to verse 11. First from Job chapter 30. Here we have the Lord addressing Job. The word of the Lord. Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bear young? They bow down, they bring forth their young, they deliver their offspring. Their young ones are healthy, they go strong with grain, they depart and do not return to them. Who set the wild donkeys free? Who loosed the bounds of the onager? Whose home I have made the wilderness and the barren land his dwelling? He scorns the tumult of the city, he does not heed the shouts of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Will the wild ox be willing to serve you? Will he bed by your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in the furrow with ropes? Or will he plow the valleys behind you? Will you trust him because his strength is great? Or will you leave your labor to him? Will you trust him to bring home your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are her wings and pinions like the kindly storks? For she leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may break them. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without concern because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. Have you given the horse strength? Have you closed his neck with thunder? Can you frighten him like a locust? His majestic snorting strikes terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. He mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear and javelin. He devours the distance with fierceness and rage, nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet has sounded. The blast of the trumpet, he says, aha, he smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains and shouting. Does the hawk fly by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle mount up at your command and make its nest on high? On the rock it dwells and resides, on the crag of the rock and the stronghold. From there it spies out the prey, its eyes observe from afar, its young ones suck up blood and where the slain are, there it is. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Thus far, our reading from the book of Job. Let us turn then to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6, chapter or verse 6. The word of the Lord once again. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. 
How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Thus far, our readings. We turn now to our text for this morning's sermon from Proverbs 30, beginning at verse 24. There we hear the words of the Lord given to Augur, the son of Jekah. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no king, yet they advance in ranks. The spider skillfully grasps with its hands, and it is in kings' palaces. Thus far, our text. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, now, this sermon was originally preached in my home church in Grand Valley as, as part of a sermon series on, on wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Reading through the book of Proverbs, you can see that there are various ways in which you can acquire wisdom. Different directions and instructions that you can follow in order that you might learn to to live well in God's created order. To live in harmony with your maker and the creation that he has placed us in. We see that while all true wisdom ultimately comes from the Lord, true wisdom isn't simply something that's that's downloaded directly into our brains. It's not simply that one can pray for wisdom and then they'll just have it. True wisdom is generally gained through through study, reflection, and, and conversation with wise individuals. It's often found by studying the inspired words of wisdom found in places like the book of Proverbs where you read and reflect on the the sayings of of men like King Solomon or Augur, son of Jekah, or King Lemuel or a group who are known as the wise. Wisdom can also be sought in the words of, of wise parents or friends or mentors. But we might not think to to look for wisdom among animals. Now, animals, after all, lack the the consciousness possessed by human beings. Now, while animals do often display a a certain amount of intelligence, animals are not known to to reason or or reflect or, or ponder the nature of existence. Animals, we might say, seem to to lack a a sense of self-awareness that would seem really important for gaining wisdom. Animals don't really question how life is to be lived or or what constitutes a a good, God-pleasing life. But the very ways in which they live can be instructive to us. We don't need to have a, a thoughtful conversation with an animal or, or read a book written by an animal in order to be instructed by them. 
Now we see in Proverbs, we only need to observe how God enables them and equips them to survive and thrive in his world in order that we might learn some important lessons about how we might better survive and thrive in God's world. Beloved, I proclaim God's word as it comes to us in Proverbs 30, the verses 24 to 28, using this theme. We'll see the creator reveals wisdom through his creatures. We'll look first at the ants, second, the rock badgers, third, the locusts, and fourth, the lizards. And I will explain why it's the lizards later on in this message. First, the ants. We are told, beloved, the ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. Now I suspect that pretty much all of us are familiar with the sight of of ants milling about and and searching for food and, and dragging it back to their nests. Especially at this time of year, if the weather is good and you, you have been outside, you'll often witness dozens of ants scurrying in and out of their nests. But you know, once the, the weather turns to, to fall or winter, they disappear. We know they, they go into hibernation. They, they survive of what they previously ate or stored. Rather like bears or, or other mammals we might know about. Ants, we might say, they illustrate the wisdom of, of planning ahead, of having foresight. They work hard, you might say, when the going's good, that they'll be prepared for the, the lean days that will inevitably come. They illustrate the importance of making the most of our present opportunities. We might say that the the wisdom of the ants was particularly relevant to to people living in in ancient times, living at the the times that the Proverbs were given. Oh, back then it was extremely hard to ensure that you would have all the food that you and your family needed to survive. Ancient farming may have been organic, but it wasn't particularly productive by modern standards. It was important for those working the land to work long and hard during those growing seasons. To bring in as much as possible in order that they might make it through the other periods of the year. This also explains to us why things like the giving of of first fruits in the Old Testament was such an act of faith. Because you couldn't necessarily guarantee that there would be more food coming along. Giving the first of your crops to God was a sign of trust in him. It also speaks to why times of harvest in the Old Testament were often marked with with feasts and festivals. You didn't always see food in abundance. So you often celebrated when it was there. Our text, beloved, is not the the only place to uphold the, the wisdom of the ants. Now, Proverbs 6, which we read earlier, also praised the, the wisdom of the ant and encouraged us to, to learn from the, the hard work and the, the self-motivation, you might say, of these little creatures. As we read, we are told, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. 
She provides her supplies in the summer, gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? The ant teaches us to prepare for times ahead. And this is good advice even today. It's highly recommended for us to, to say, have some savings on hands that we could fall back on if we were to, to lose our job or, or need to repair a car or a water heater, a furnace. You might say it's a wise idea to, to save for retirement to your, your later years because you don't know what kind of strength, what kind of energy, what kind of health concerns might arise in the days to come. But of course, we should also understand, beloved, that this is good advice when it comes to eternal life. Reminded, we might say, of the the need to to prepare for eternity. To store up treasures for ourselves in heaven, as Jesus Christ tells us. The Apostle Paul instructs us, he says, run the good race, compete for the prize, fight the good fight in the present. We are to look with confidence and and hope to the eternal inheritance which Christ has secured us by his his death and resurrection. We always rest in what Christ has done, but we also see that there is a need in response to what Christ has done for us to be busy and active doing God's will right now. The ants remind us that we should not ignore or, or put off The call of the gospel. The need to repent of our sins. Turn to God right now. Believe in what he has revealed. And then serve our Lord and Savior with joy and gladness every day. Serving the Lord isn't something we can can put off for the future. It's not we can say, these years belong to me. It's for me to get established in my life. Every day, we're to recognize the, the urgent call to, to do God's will, whatever our walk of life looks like. Further, we might say as, as the church, as God's children, we need to, to heed the need to, to bring in the, the crop of the elect, to spread the good news about what Jesus Christ has done before the final harvest comes in. Beloved, the days and the years will not go on forever. The time of the final harvest, the second coming of Jesus Christ, will one day come. And when that day arrives, there will be no more time for doing the will of the Lord. No more time to to turn to the Lord if we have not already done so. Let us consider the future, beloved, and prepare for the days ahead, like the ants. The second group we are to learn from are the rock badgers. Proverbs tells us, the rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their home in the crags. The rock badgers, we might say, they illustrate the importance of having a solid place of refuge. Now, the rock badger, beloved, if you were to say, look it up online, maybe Google it after the worship service, 
It's a creature also known as the, the Herex or the, the Rock Herex or the Coney. This is not a particularly tough looking critter. A kind of small mammals with, with thick round bodies and short little legs and a, a small tail. I think they kind of look like overgrown hamsters, to be honest, which is to say they're about the least intimidating creature on earth. But they wisely live on on rocky cliff faces, places where where predators generally cannot reach them. And even if they can be reached, they wisely often make their, their burrows deep in the rock face so they can't just be dug out. Now their secure homes are also mentioned in in Psalm 104, verse 18. We're told, the high hills are for the wild goats, the cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. Studies in in modern Israel have revealed that, that rock badgers are rarely caught by predators due to their rocky homes, their use of centuries. I mean, some of the rock badgers keep a lookout. The result, rock badgers continue to thrive even to this day, though at large parts of Africa and the Middle East. The rock badger builds his house on the rock, or at least in the rock. He has a safe place to seek refuge in trouble and distress. Throughout the Old Testament, we we see the importance of having a, a place of refuge, Now read in several places in the book of Judges, for instance, about people taking refuge in in towers or or fortresses within their towns. And of course, we're also reminded in numerous places of how God is to be our fortress and refuge. He is to be our rock. The rock badger speaks in part of the wisdom of being in a place of, of physical refuge. I might say it reminds us it's a good idea to have a a place of shelter if we're ever to get hit by a a tornado or a winter storm. But ultimately, the rock badger really ought to remind us of our need to find refuge in the arms of our powerful God. Oh, as King David proclaimed in song, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. As believers living in the New Testament age, the the rock badger reminds us to find refuge in Jesus Christ, our sure refuge and salvation. Reminds us of the need to share in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who rose from the grave, who rose in spite of the rock before his tomb that we might find safety and refuge in his arms. Now it can be tempting for us to trust in our our abilities, our our strength, our our energy to to carry us through this life and perhaps we might even think to, to carry us into the next But beloved, we are weak and feeble in ourselves. Our sinful nature means we do not have the strength necessary. No, we need to find refuge in God, our Savior. 
We need to rest upon the sure promises of God, all those fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the one who can ensure our safety even in eternity. This brings us to our third point. Here we are called to imitate the wisdom of the locusts. Our text states, The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. Uh, Locusts or or desert grasshoppers, they are a a powerful symbol of cooperation. A a locust swarm, it has no, no leader. But a swarm nevertheless can travel united, unstoppable, devouring everything in its path. The largest locust swarms can cover hundreds of square kilometers. They can contain billions of locusts. They can consume over 100,000 tons of vegetation each day that they travel. A small wonder, Joel, in his book, tells us what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. An illustration of the, the locusts marching together is also conveyed in chapter 2 of Joel, where it says, They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. They do not break ranks. You know, it's interesting. Researchers in 2006 were studying locusts. And and what they found is that as a, a locust swarm grows, the more and more individuals, locusts who get caught up in it, the more and more organized it becomes. If we only have a few locusts in a single place, they'll they'll kind of travel loosely. But once the numbers build up, once you get to about 72 locusts per square meter, the individual locusts, they stop just kind of milling about and all going in different directions. And instead, they effectively all march or advance in a single direction. And they'll do that for kilometers at a time. The locusts don't need to be compelled or encouraged to work together. They'll do it on instinct. Well, as human beings, we don't necessarily have that instinct. We can often struggle to to work together whenever there's a a lack of hierarchy, no one in charge. Whether you're talking about governments, a military, or a business, there generally needs to be be ranks or or levels of authority to ensure that, that large groups of people will work productively together, their jobs or assignments. You know, the locusts, they they remind us that that wise individuals won't need to be coerced before they they carry out their responsibilities. They don't necessarily need someone telling them what to do or, or telling them where to go. Because they'll simply know what's best to do for the, the good of the whole group. For wise, we won't wait for others to tell us what to do or what needs to be done. But of our own accord, we'll get together with those around us and get things done. 
that's something worth reflecting upon as a church. It's pretty common in church settings that a lot of people in the congregation will be fairly inactive unless they're kind of pushed or, or nudged to do something. A lot of times people can be waiting around till someone taps them on the shoulder and says, hey, why don't you join with this committee? Why don't you volunteer at this event or, or help us run this evening? You know, really, beloved, we should have the, the wisdom that when opportunities present themselves to us or we know about things that we can be done, we ought to be eager to just get together with other believers and do it. We shouldn't only work together when we're forced to. We should strive to, to work together as equals, recognizing that you know, regardless of our, our backgrounds, we're one in Christ. Now, our heavenly king, he hasn't left his church with a, an elaborate church hierarchy. You have Christ. You have Christ delegating authority to elders. You have elders then overseeing church members. It's a rather simple setup. You might think perhaps we should be more organized, have more positions, have more ranks to get more things done. But instead, we ought to ask for more wisdom. That even without specific people telling us to do specific tasks, we would be eager to work for the good of the kingdom of God. Let us keep our focus upon doing the will of God at all times. This finally brings us to our, our fourth point. And here we'll consider the lizards. Now I recognize what you might be thinking, and that is, what lizard is the minister talking about? The new King James Version identifies the, the creature mentioned in our text as a, as a spider. This follows a, a tradition that's found in, in later Aramaic translations of the, the Old Testament. But today, if you were to, to open up a, a Hebrew dictionary, you'd see that scholars in our almost universal agreement that the, the creature actually being referred to here as a, a lizard of some kind, most likely a gecko. In Proverbs 30, verse 28, in our New King James Version, you might read, the spider skillfully grasps with its hands. But but in the original Hebrew, the, the creature mentioned here isn't said to really grasp anything. The Hebrew is saying, you, know, you can certainly grasp or catch the creature. More accurate translation of the original would read more like something you might find in, say, the, the English Standard Version. It's the, the lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in the, the king's palaces. The point we might say of this, this passage, beloved, is that though these, these creatures may be weak, they cannot be stopped from getting into even the most important of places. You know, like the, the sparrows and the swallows, which nested in the temple courts of the Lord in Jerusalem, near his altar, little lizards could often be found in exalted places to live. At one point in the book of Leviticus, we have a, a graphic reminder of this, in fact. 
If you were to read, starting at Leviticus 11, verse 29, you'd read, These also shall be unclean to you among the creeping things that creep on the, creep on the earth, the mole, the mouse, and the large lizard after its kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that creep. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until evening. And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean. Whether it is an item of wood or clothing or skin or sack, whatever item it is in which any work is done, it must be put in water. It shall be unclean until evening. And see what the, the text is acknowledging there in Leviticus is that lizards and, and other small creeping creatures they often died in people's homes. And you know, even today, if you were to, to travel to a, a more tropical climate, in many countries you can expect that you will have some, some lizards or, or gecko companions in your bedrooms or your living quarters searching for insects to eat. And sometimes a, a dead one might turn up. Now, the lesson of the lizard is the most debated, the most mysterious of the four animals. Now, the ESV study Bible states that the the lesson of the lizard is that even the humblest creature can attain to the highest circle of society. Now, even a humble lizard can be near a king. Another background commentary suggests that the the lesson of the lizard is that they make the most of their abilities to to succeed. You know, they, they get around, so they get around to where it's safe. Personally, I think we might take wisdom from a commentary which suggests that the the point of this saying, beloved, is that a a weak creature, like a lizard that can be easily caught, still cannot be prevented from getting into the most significant of places. The lizard, we might say, is a reminder that, that our own strength, our own ability, does not necessarily determine where we end up. See, the lizard can be understood as a picture of how God enables the meek, the lowly, the despised of the earth to still enter into a great inheritance that he grants, that he has prepared for us in Jesus Christ. We might be insignificant by the world's standards, By the grace and work of Jesus Christ, there is a magnificent place being prepared for us in the house of God the Father. We, beloved, who are in many ways are so insignificant, who are so weak, really, when you get down to it in ourselves, might nevertheless look forward to living in the house of the great King for all eternity. Our text for this morning's sermon essentially teaches us four different lessons. And it does this to to drive home one larger lesson. That wisdom doesn't just come to us from the large, the powerful, or the influential. Our text began, there are four creatures or four things which are little on the earth. But they are exceedingly wise. From these small creatures, we might learn vital lessons about how we are to live. 
None of the creatures we've looked at are particularly large. You know, the, the rock badgers of verse 26 are the, the largest of the group, and they only reach about 11 pounds, you know, the, the size of a large house cat. And the others are considerably smaller. But our text teaches us not to overlook them. We might say it's a reminder to us that, that wisdom is often found in surprising places. True wisdom is often granted to those who might, in our eyes, be seen as as insignificant or irrelevant. You know, the truly wise individual isn't necessarily the, the head of a country or a corporation or the chancellor over a university. True wisdom is often found in extremely humble and and shy individuals who who live out what might seem like rather simple lives, but who do so with great joy and contentment, seeking to do the will of God in all things because they know what is truly most important in this life. Our text tells us to look to small animals, but in doing so it reminds us that great wisdom is can be found in other seemingly insignificant places. That reflects the the words of of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world. And the things which are despised, God has chosen And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. God often grants great wisdom to those who are small in the eyes of the world. He saved us, after all, through through one who appeared to so many human eyes to be a, a simple Jewish peasant. He built his church on the the testimony of ordinary, unschooled apostles who were not admired by the religious leaders and experts of their day. And the early opponents of Christianity, they sought to dismiss this so-called new religion. They said it was a religion for slaves, for the uneducated, because so many of the, the slaves and the ordinary people Heeded the call of the gospel. Well, God often deliberately uses people who may seem less in the eyes of the world that his glory might be all the greater. He uses those the world might see as insignificant. That there's no question that it is God himself truly driving forward his plan of salvation, truly accomplishing his plan for us. All four of those animals, beloved, they point to our need for God. In their efforts to strive and thrive, they they remind us of the shortcomings of this world, the way our souls cry out to experience a better one. Their strategies for survival speak to our own needs and ultimately our own need for God in order that we might find complete satisfaction and rest. Let us heed the wisdom displayed by these creatures and be led by them to our Creator. Amen.